Jesus said, in this world, you will have much tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we know right up that if you're going to live a Christian life in a fallen world that's actually in rebellion against God, there are going to be challenges and obstacles and trouble. But Christ promised to us, but be of good cheer. Cheer up. I have overcome the world. And right there in this sentence is the two elements that are necessary to live a life of overcoming. I have overcome the world. You can overcome the world. So what are the two elements? One is trust in God's promises. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Therefore, you can overcome the world. That's his promise. The second thing is a good example. We humans love examples, good examples. And Jesus is the example. So we need two things, promises and a person. We would say when we were doing a training about these very subjects, uh, we need examples in our lives, people around us. And in fact, that's what officers are to begin with. They're examples to the flock. Jesus, even uh, Paul said, rather, follow, no, this is Hebrews, I guess, follow the example of your leaders. But we would make a joke and say, but the best examples are dead ones. Because once they passed away and you dissect their lives, then you, you know, you're not waiting for, you know, the next uh, news cycle to find out something you didn't know. And so that's one reason why um, uh, re the Revolutionary War and the Civil War is popular among Americans. Because in the War of the Revolution and the Civil War, there is uh, great examples uh, for us to follow. And now that enough time has passed, we're pretty sure we're not going to get any new cycle revelations, and we can more comfortably follow them. You know, one of my greatest is George Washington and his family, the people that he had around him that served with him during the revolution. So we've done a lot of reading about the revolution and George Washington and been to most of his battle sites. And we've done the same thing with the Civil War, seeking examples. And I want to share with you an example of a pattern this morning who can take you through all phases of your life. But uh, I would hasten to add, there are also uh, people who are among us who are good examples, and that's those who have served in our armed forces. Do you know what today is? It's Veterans Day. And in fact, uh, this was uh, the end of World War I. It was called Armistice Day, the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. 1918, November 1918. And so then they combined them into Veterans Day. Memorial Day is for those who have died in service to their country. Veterans Day is all those who uh, have served. And then there's another smaller one, which is for those who are currently serving. But on Veterans Day, we serve all, uh, we honor all those who have served in our armed forces. And this is the 100th anniversary of that. So we honor you this morning. We appreciate you. 
if you have served or are serving in our armed forces. And we recognize that when we worship in freedom, it's because in the past and today, there are people who are guarding that freedom. And when we are able to give uh, generously to the work of the church, it's because of the prosperity we have in this nation that others would steal, or are stealing, <laughs> if they could. So we recognize that we have a plethora of great examples, even among us. But sometimes the dead ones have no surprises. And we have the, the distance to be able to say, you know, sometimes you're too close to the thing. It takes a generation or two. That's why grandchildren always love to study their grandparents. You know, their parents are too close. You know, they want to go back a little further so there's some distance. And uh, 40 years ago, <clears throat> uh, Sandy and I, uh, we had served on crew staff and then gone to seminary in Chicago. And we were going to our first church, and it was a church plant. So I've been through this, Sandy and I, with you. It was in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And Sandy had grown up in Milwaukee, but she most of her life had been in Myrtle Beach. I grew up in North Carolina. This was God's humor. This was God's humor. We got there, and it snowed in November. Forget white Christmas. We always had white Thanksgiving. And it never melts in Minnesota. Like Chicago, it melts and gets all dirty and ugly and mushy. In Minnesota, it never gets warm enough, and it stays white the whole winter like a white refrigerator. And uh, it's beautiful if you like white. And you don't see even brown grass until May, you see. So I said, okay, okay. And then in January, we had 40 days in a row. The high temperature did not get above zero. That's the high. It snowed so badly that winter, they ran out of places to put the snow. I have a picture of our young daughter, Elizabeth, uh, who had been born in Chicago, and she's going down the sidewalk, and the pile of snow is three times her height. She's going down a tunnel. So we had to think through overcoming and endurance. And that year, in September, I preached on Caleb. Caleb. We have at least one Caleb here, don't we? This is for you. <laughs> he and Joshua were the two of the 12 spies that came back from checking out the land and gave a good report, and the other 10 gave a bad report. What's interesting about Caleb is that you can uh, follow him all through his life, the early life, the middle life, and the ending of, toward the end of his life. And the promises of God plus the example of Caleb can give us a pattern for all phases of our lives. And so I've never had a wristband that said, what would Jesus do? Because I have no idea what Jesus would do. <laughs> I know what Jesus said, and I know what he did, but I didn't know what he would do. So I did the same thing with Caleb. What did Caleb do in this situation at the beginning of his life, where Sandy and I were? What, did he what did challenges did he face in the middle of his life? And then what challenges did he face at the end of his life, and how did it end up? And in uh, 1978, that was uh, three sermons. 
So you have to listen fast. And I'm counting on you to go back and look at this some. Now, in your bulletin, I have an outline on page 7, and I see that somehow I transposed the Scripture for 2 and 3. So the Scripture for 2 is at Numbers 32, and the Scripture for 3 is Joshua 14. And you can go back and read that later. First, we began Caleb as a young man, and he had a surprising faith. In fact, see these yellowed sheets? These are my notes from my first sermon in Minneapolis. You know, now I can do it from my, from my iPad if I wanted to, from my computer. And these are like handwritten notes, and I had a, a notebook that size. And these were my notes from that first sermon. And um, so let me share something with him, uh, with you uh, from the Scripture about him. Because the first thing he faced was the challenge of going into this land. Now, they had been slaves. Uh, Caleb at that time was about uh, 40 years old, uh, 40 years old. And his name means servant or dog. Sorry about that. He was, <laughs> uh, he was not high class like Moses and uh, Joshua. Moses had grown up in uh, the Pharaoh's court. He was highly educated. Caleb had not. But he was the leader of the tribe of Judah. Okay? So he's one of the 12 that are sent out, and they come out with two different reports, and you have the report. And I divided the report into, uh, into four things, land, people, Lord, and self. In fact, I call them God, grasshoppers, giants, and grapes. Grapes, giants, grasshoppers, and God. And that was land, people, their, themselves, and the Lord. And they had two different views when they came, in, came back. The uh, ten, and, and uh, Ken read that to you, the ten said, look, as far as the land, it's nice, but forget it. It swallows up the people in it. As far as the people, they said, hey, they're giants. And then they said, as far as us, we're grasshoppers. And um, land people. And as far as the Lord, they never mention him. Now, these are people that they saw all those plagues that the Lord put on, on Egypt. And then Pharaoh said, get out, I'll let you go. And then they asked their Egyptians, could you give us something for the journey? And they loaded them down with clothing and jewelry and gold and silver, anything. Take anything you want, just go. So they left wealthy. They got up there to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh changed his mind. They're chasing all his armies and chariots and everything. And they're like, whoa. Got an army over there and got a sea over here. What happens next? So God parted it, and they passed over on dry land, the whole bunch of them. And Pharaoh says, well, let's go after him. And Pharaoh goes after him, and the water comes back and destroyed Pharaoh and the whole army. Now, having seen all that, you think they would think, well, if God can do that, then he can do this. But they said, nope, God is not trustworthy. The land is not worth it. We're, we are like grasshoppers, and the people in the land are big giants. Now, Caleb and Joshua came back, and Caleb put it this way. He said, look, the land, they had a bunch of grapes, 
that was so heavy, they hung it on a big, long stick, and two men carried it, one in the back, one in the front. Milk and the honey. The land is desirable. See, the ten that gave the bad report said, it ain't worth it. Moses said, it's desirable. You see, that's the first thing I saw about Caleb. Uh, do I believe that serving God is desirable? Do I believe that the church is a desirable place? It's worth my time and energy. That the people of God are worth spending time with. Do I believe that heaven is a real place and it's worth serving God so that I can have rewards when I get there? Is God and his people and his church and his heaven desirable? The ten said no. Caleb said it is. So I ask you this morning. Do you find the things of God desirable, or do you figure they're not worth it? I got better things to do, golf, sailing, fishing, hunting, sleeping in, whatever. Look at the next thing, giants. He said, yeah, they're giants, but God will give them into our hands. It doesn't matter. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Remember what Prince Jonathan said, whether many or few, God can prevail. You see this theme running through there? Look what he said about, he said, the, the ten said, we're like grasshoppers. It, what do you think of yourself? Well, if God is with us, who can be against us? Romans 8. And that's what uh, 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 Caleb said. We can do this if we've got the powerful God who's made promises to us. And what did he say about God? God is God. And he's made promises. He doesn't change. He's reliable. We can do this thing. So even in 1 John, it addresses young people and it says, uh, dream dreams. See, vision and dreams are what gets life started. But you don't have to just be young. You can do that in middle age or old age. If you say God is trustworthy, his promises are reliable, his land is desirable, and we can do this. So here we are, starting a new church in Minneapolis, and he became my lodestar, Caleb. In fact, I was witnessing someone one time, sharing the gospel with them, and he said, well, I'm just not interested in this. And I said, well, that's perfectly understandable. Uh, God has not granted you repentance. He hasn't given you the grace of belief. And he said, uh, well, yeah, I'm not interested. I said, yeah, that's what I just said. But I'm not interested in this. I said, yeah, that's right. You were born and, uh, with a, I don't want it. Say it as one word. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. See, we're all born. I said, you're born with an I don't want it. Okay? You know, you've got to share with your sister. I don't want to. Okay? You've got to make up your bed. I don't want to. You've got to tithe from your allowance. I don't want to. Everybody's born with a, I don't want to. And that's what I said to the guy. You've been born with a, I don't want to. And here's the thing. You can't change it. Try as hard as you can. You can't change it. It's in DNA. So the only thing you can do is ask God to give you the grace of repentance. God can change it. Change it to, uh, I want it. I want to do it. I want to. I want to. I want to. No, no, I don't want to. I do want to. So what have you got? You're born with the I don't want to. 
Has God given you the grace to have a I want to? I want to know more about Jesus. I want his payment for my sentence, for my sin. I want to be with his people. I want to go to heaven. Only God can do that. Ten said, I don't want to. They were born with it. They went with it. But two, and one was Caleb, he had a I want to. I do want to. I want to. Because he believed in a God that was powerful and promises that were true, the land was desirable, and therefore we can do this. That's him as a young man. But then that's what happens. That was a surprising faith. Then, then what happened in midlife? Oh, it's a scary thing. You read it here in uh, chapter 14 of Numbers. God gets all worked up. He says, I'm going to kill every last one of them and raise up a new Israel through Moses' children. And Moses says, please don't do that. You're a loving, kind God. Please forgive them. And in, in Numbers uh, 14, 20, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you ask. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, they had seen this, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it, because my servant Jacob has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly. I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. There's the word, wholehearted. Wholehearted. Moses, further in number, he says, and name and uh, Caleb followed him wholeheartedly. In fact, if you go to Nehemiah, and uh, Nehemiah is talking about some of the Jews had intermarried with foreign women when they came back from the exile. He said, this is what happened to Solomon. Married foreign women, they led him astray because Solomon didn't follow God with his whole heart. See, that becomes the question. That becomes the question. Is there anything in your heart that means something more to you than God? You can call it an idol. In other words, God, you can have 95% of my heart, but there's 5% I reserved for self. It can be wealth, achievement, drugs, sex, you know, whatever you want. That you can't have. And then that part erodes the rest. Because God said, here's the judgment. Caleb, follow me with his whole heart. The rest didn't. And so all those miracles I did, it meant nothing to these guys. They have treated me with contempt. They have basically said, God can't do it. He's unreliable. He's not a guy to take into battle with. You can't trust him. And God said, well, if that's the way you feel about it, he says, um, verse 35, your children will be shepherds here for 40 years in the desert, suffering for your unfaithfulness, and you will suffer for your sin, Numbers 14, 34. So he said, okay, uh, turn around, go back to the desert. And here we go for 40 years. Now, in Numbers 26, they took a census. And in 
Numbers 26, verse 31, they said they had 600,000 men of fighting age 20 and above. Well, say, you know, they had wives, that's 1.2 million. Say they had two children, that's 4 million. We're talking 4, 5, 6 million people. That's a lot of people. And they turn back to the desert. And God provides for them, you know, manna from heaven, this food for 40 years. But I want you to think a minute where that left Caleb. This was not his fault. He was ready to roll. But he was part, he was a Jew. So whatever happened to the nation was going to happen to him. I want you to think about his situation. If you take that four million divided by four, 40 years, all those people had to die. It comes out to a funeral every 20 minutes. And then it accelerated toward the end, of course, as people got older. This was a death squad wandering in the desert, and it's not his fault. Think about the ceaseless complaints of the people. They were complainers. So you know they spent 40 years complaining. We're tired of manna. Give us quail. Think about the petty jealousies among those people. Miriam and Aaron said, we too have the spirit of the Lord. Think about the oppression, all those funerals. Think about the moral life. If you start out disobeying God, you're going to degenerate. And so millions of people, I can't imagine the degenerate moral life they got into. Little spiritual fellowship. Who wants to talk about the promised land? Nobody. Because they're going to die and never see it. Think about the temptation to rebel against God for his injustice. Have you been there? Am I describing your work conditions a little bit? How much do people at where you work want to talk about God and the kingdom? You've been on a team and you're the only one that's going to get the work done. But the whole team sinks or falls, so you've got to do your work. Do you have a life situation? I'm thinking of a family in Pennsylvania. They had one child, a son, great guy, Christian guy. Ohio's got a bad drug problem, got bad, hooked on drugs. Rehab, rehab, rehab. Third one took, came back, got a job, sober. Um, got a car, got an apartment. Payday on Friday, decided to celebrate. Went out on his favorite rock over the river, shot up, died. He forgot that he'd been off for a year or two, and he used the same old dose. His body couldn't take it. Only child, only son, 28 years old. There's some tough things out there. I think of another couple I knew. Their son is on death row in Alabama. And their life's goal is try to get that commuted to life. He's a murderer. I mean, has there been divorce in your family? Either in you or your children? 
And now you're trying to walk that narrow line between being a grandparent and not showing favoritism because you may not get to see your grandchildren. And none of this is, is your fault. Some of it may be, but a lot of it isn't. So are you, are, you, are, you, are you tempted to rebel against God for the injustice of it all? Resentment? Self-pity? That's possible. Caleb was weary, deprived, homeless, all those things. But we know the end of the story, that he never succumbed. Because here's what he did. He was in the desert, but he wasn't of the desert. His body was in the desert, but his mind and his heart wasn't. You know where his mind and his heart was? In the promised land. He was waiting. He was abiding God's will because he was part of Israel. But he was trusting God's promises that there is a light at the end of the tunnel that God is true, God never changes, he will fulfill his promises. So for 40 years, he lived through all this because he was in the desert, but he wasn't of the desert. He was in the world, but not of the world. His mind and his heart were looking for a better day, and his trust in God and his promises never wavered. If God has promised it, it will happen. I can endure this. In this world, you'll have much tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And if you're knee-deep in it right now, think back. Where's your heart? Is it in heaven? Where's your faith? Is it in God and his promises? How do you see yourself? As a victim? Or as an overcomer. See, you see why I love Caleb. In his young life, he had a surprising faith, two out of ten. In his middle life, he had a sustaining faith. And let's look at the end of his life where he had this superb faith in Numbers chapter 32. Numbers 32. Do I have that right? No, 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 I read it wrong. Joshua 14. Now, they're conquering the land, and he's the head of Judah, okay? Now, the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to Joshua, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadosh Barnea, about you and me. He's going back to what God promised 45 years ago. God doesn't change, and his promise is reliable. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brethren who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. However, I follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. There it is. So on that day, Moses swore to me, quote, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have fathered the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the day he said this to Moses, while, Mo, while Israel moved about in the desert and died. 
So here am I today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me the hill country that the Lord promised me 45 years ago. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as inheritance. And he went and he conquered it. Man for all seasons. Caleb the overcomer. Caleb the wholehearted. Caleb who has a surprising faith, a sustained faith, and now a superb faith because he trusted God when he was young, when he trusted God during those tough middle years when you're taking care of children and grandparents all at the same time. He trusted God. He was in the world but not of the world. His heart and his mind were on God and his promises. And so when the time came, he stands there, give me this land that the God promised me 45 years ago because that's what I've been living for. Wow. It gets better. You say, how can it get better? Well, it gets better. Because over here in Joshua 15, Caleb has a daughter. And he gives her to a brave man, Othniel, son of Caleb's brother. And he gave her to him in marriage. And one day she came to Othniel. She urged him to ask her father for a field. She got off her donkey, and Caleb asked her, My daughter, what can I do for you? She said, Do me a special favor. You've given me land in the Negev that God promised and you conquered. Also give me springs of water. Land isn't worth much unless it's watered. So the springs were higher up the mountain. She says, it's okay to have the land, but I need some watering springs. And Caleb gave them to her. What are you leaving your children? They're blessed if you leave them something material. But are you living, give, leaving them springs of living water? You're, you might have them in church. You're giving them a Christian inheritance. The springs of living water represents the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit to trust God. Are you leaving them an example of trusting God? Are you leaving them an example that you can say to your grandchildren, God never changes. God is worthy of your trust. You can always count on his promises. He has never failed me. And that water flows out into their lives. Grandpa and Grandma said, I can trust God. And they must know because they've been trusting him all their lives. Springs of water Caleb gave to his granddaughter. That's what I like to leave to my grandchildren. Would you like to leave it? Start out with a young, surprising faith. Live a sustaining faith and then end up with a superb faith. And then you have the promises of God and the example of Caleb. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Caleb, what he lived through, being a slave and then being delivered 
spying out the land and ready to take it. But then because of his people living 40 years in the desert, but then taking what God had promised so many years before. Father, give us a trust in you, a heart for your kingdom. And let us see ourselves as people of destiny if we trust you and your promises. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.